Today, we continue a tale of wrestling, violence, terror, and a sex scandal. It's part two of Evan Strangler Lewis. Crazy territory stories, double crosses, and swerves. Pro wrestling history nerds. Holy crap, we're here again with another episode. Can you believe we survived this long? We're making it to a fourth episode. Unbelievable, champ. I would have I would have thrown in the towel a long time ago or at least bet money that we would have. And I'm glad we didn't, and I bet you're glad we didn't. You know, if you if you're wondering who is talking, my name's Nick Gossard. I'm a pro wrestling promoter, and I'm here with the uh, you know, what if Rick Jones to my ultimate daredevil, uh Chongo Bronson. Hello, nerds! Welcome to the party! We are we are going to Listen, learn, party, pro wrestling history nerds, you are in great company, and it is my pleasure to be here today. And I feel the same gosh darn way with a slightly more subdued energy. And for those of you tuning in possibly for the first time, what we're doing here is we're exploring the deep, rich history of pro wrestling. And for those of you who know a lot about pro wrestling history, you may be listening to some of these stories and going, you know what, fellas? Maybe you're not doing your research right, because I've heard differently, and you know what? Maybe you have, because pro wrestling history, for most of the uh, time it's been around, is an oral tradition. It's a storytelling tradition. It's, I heard it this way, I heard it this way. It's a game of telephone, which sometimes ends up on the doorstep of Bullshitville. This is a grand storytelling tradition from before the days of a video, man. All we had was the, the, the ability to tell these stories and pass them on through the verbal and through the written traditions. And, and it is so exciting to be recreating that format to share this you know, journey with everybody. Exactly. So, you know, we're piecing together as many sources as we can, you know, take all the versions, all the oral traditions and combine it with the articles uh, from old newspapers that fortunately we're able to find online. So there's a lot of source materials from back when this was covered as a real sport, because back in the 1800s, it was a real sport. Yes, the, the, or, the origin point coming out of the Civil War, you could, you could make a case that uh, professional boxing and professional wrestling were two birds of a similar feather. And the evolution of each individual sport took its own path based on the, the ener- environmental variables of that uh, time and place. The roots of pro wrestling, uh, as we've been exploring in the late 1800s, it was a real sport for the most part. But you know what? That's the same story with boxing, with track and field, with everything you saw, because nothing was honest, because people aren't honest. And if you can, uh, you know, make a match, get a little, uh, you know, a little one-sided, go a certain way so you can put some money on it, gosh darn it, if people aren't gonna do that because we are a deeply flawed species, but we do our best, gosh darn it. And speaking of doing our best, we're here to tell a truly fascinating story, the second part of Evan Strangler Lewis. The man who brought the moniker of professional wrestler into the 20th century, the strangler, perhaps the first heel, the first truly feared and loathed villain in professional wrestling. That is on the nose because people did not like this guy. They paid good money hoping to see him get his ass kicked, which is a great way to be if you're trying if your job is selling tickets, trying to make money on the big stage. We see that in legitimate sports. You see people like um 
Yeah, well, you know, in pro wrestling, it's a long, long, uh, you know, there's a long history of people who did not pay good money to see Ric Flair hopefully lose that night, even though you know he wasn't. Yes. When it comes down to, darling, is tickets are sold two ways. People want to pay to see you get your ass kicked or people want to pay to see you kick somebody's ass. Then that's a 50-50 split you see in lots of sports. I, I, you know, I would say easily half, if not more, of the pay-per-view buys for a Conor McGregor fight is hoping to see him finally get his mouth shut. And when it happens, holy shit, uh, it kind of kills your draw. And that's the downside of being a villain in a legitimate sport is once you've lost, it's a little bit harder to come back and want to be the guy that everybody wants to see lose because it's already happened. But you know what? Everybody likes to uh, come twice in one night. Is that uh, the, the family friendly way to say it? I, I don't know if it's family friendly. You might have to multiply that by the family season pass. I don't know what that number would be. But the fact is, you, do, you when the villain loses, he loses his heat. And Strangler was not one to lose his heat, darling. Oh, absolutely not. In fact, that's where we left off last time. Um, we had kind of followed the, we had followed the journey of Strangler Lewis from a farm boy in Wisconsin all the way through a insane night in Buffalo where the mayor was ringside. He hated seeing what's going on. He banned the stranglehold. Evan Lewis decided to just put his elbow in his opponent's neck until the referee was trying to drag him off. He wouldn't let go. The mayor sent the cops in. A riot nearly broke out. He had to sneak out of Buffalo under cover of night to avoid arrest. And it doesn't get much hotter than that. Yeah, and it, it, it really speaks to the people at the time because that sounds like a page out of the Vince McMahon Stone Cold Steve Austin playbook, except Stone Cold was the heel. The people backed the mayor. The mayor had the police swinging at Strangler's head with nightclubs, man. That is getting heat. So having escaped the law in Buffalo, he still had to move forward with his career. And on May 7th, 1888, he took on English wrestler Jack Wannick, who was a champ of Cornish wrestling. Cornish wrestling, we discussed before, uh, the rules are pretty wacky. You have to wear a jacket, very similar to how a judo or jujitsu gi would work. But the throws, you can't grab a wrist, you can't grab the head, you can't grab a waist lock. All the throws are about leveraging the, the jacket, leveraging the gi. But fortunately for Lewis, maybe unfortunately for Wannick, this match did not take place under Cornish rules. It was set for catch as catch can. And that is a very, uh, a, a theme we will see over and over again in, in this historical look back that the rule set really made uh, major impacts on the outcomes of these matches because oftentimes we find that the champion is able to keep the rule set to his advantage, to his skill set, to his comfort zone. And I think this is another example of that paying off. But there was a catch in those catch rules because you were just saying about how the champ can maintain the point of power for negotiating the rules. Lewis was such a vicious bastard that it would be to his detriment because the mayor of Chicago only allowed this match to happen if his famous stranglehold, the guillotine, the drop hold was banned. Yeah, it sounds like an, a reoccurring theme in the career of the Strangler is that getting getting politicians to ban your your hold is one of the one of the greatest examples I've ever seen of building the lure of a move, building the lure of the danger of this match and of of you as an opponent. And I think it really speaks to the the legendary status that he had developed. 
And despite the hold being banned, Wanit clearly was afraid of Lewis and had been seen at the local pub loading up on liquid courage, if you will. He was getting a couple drinks in to uh, hopefully get his nerves together to take on the champ. Uh, and it was a three out of five match, but Lewis didn't seem interested in wasting any time and beat him in three straight falls, leaving Wanik bloody and bruised. The match was billed as a world title match, but there was really no acknowledged title on the line. It was just a promotional gimmick. And the following night, Lewis took on Sorokichi Matsuda yet again in a single fall match that lasted 13 minutes. The press at least praised Matsuda for being tougher than Wanik, which is a backhanded compliment if I've ever heard one. Yeah, totally. I mean, but, but it, there is something to be said when you are talking about, you know, the baddest dude on the playground well, Timmy lasted longer than Jimmy did. So, you know, there is there might be a legitimate air of genuine respect for the effort. But, yeah, that is pretty backhanded. Yeah. Uh, so far as in our discussion of old catch wrestling, Greco-Roman rules, real wrestling, uh, Matsuda reminds me a lot of the some of the Japanese fighters you would see in Pride in the early days where they would have like a 2-10 and 10 record, but they would constantly get booked because they put on good fights. Yeah, the, the fighting spirit of a champion, and, the, and they brought the best out of the best guys. He, he had some of the greatest matches with both Maldun and with, with Strangler, and, and he definitely earned his spot as a true uh, top-tier competitor for his era. Yes, and things were about to get a little bit rough for him in his personal life in 1888 when Milwaukee police arrested him. And you might be thinking, who did he kill? Who did he cripple? Who did he beat up in the wrong time in the wrong place? But oh no, he was arrested for the crime of illegitimate parentage. A teacher in Lewis's hometown accused Lewis of breach of promise and fathering a child out of wedlock with her. She had uh, she had heard of his wedding, which of course was you know big news because he was a sports celebrity, and wasn't too happy about it. Lewis posted the three hundred dollars bail and had to appear in court. She was suing him and wanted twenty five thousand dollars. Think about what twenty five thousand dollars in eighteen eighty eight money looks like. I think you would have to Google it, and the answer would be Google. <laughs> and is this also the first example of the Me Too movement in professional wrestling? It just might be. Oh, boy, I hadn't thought of it that way, but yes, it was. Uh, he ended up settling out of court, but it cost him most of the 1888 wrestling season and further cemented his reputation for being a dirtbag. Yeah, that is definitely some heel, heel business, especially getting in the papers. This, he left this poor teacher without the resources to, to follow the child, and then she had to read about his wedding on TMZ, that is a terrible, terrible position to find yourself in in the, in the turn of the century. Yeah, especially because you think about the, the kind of cultural values. I mean, this wasn't Victorian England, but it wasn't far removed. So doing something like that, even though it was probably very common, if you're a person in the spotlight, if you're a person with a kind of social standing, that could be devastating. But he fortunately, he did manage to get one more match in for the year against a Greek wrestler, George Theodore, who he beat in front of a small crowd for the time. I mean, it was like 400 people. I know there are indie shows today that would kill for a crowd that big, but for a legitimate sport back in those days, that wasn't much of a crowd. I don't know what the circumstances were. I couldn't find any information. But uh, to avoid a third straight fall in a three out of five contest, Theodore faked sick and forfeited. Well, that is, that you know, speaking from personal experience, one of the, uh, the highest forms of victory I have ever personally gone through is making the guy quit on his stool. When you make the guy fear 
coming back out there for the next round to the point that they will concede that is the highest form of psychological victory. Oh, absolutely. I agree 100% on that. And we've seen that happen a few times, whether it was purely psychological or whether he choked somebody so hard they literally couldn't come out for the next round. It is a recurring situation in his career. Not much used to happen during the winter in wrestling. You know, weather, travel, this wasn't, there weren't flights, you know, there weren't well-made cars, it'd be like, oh, the train can't go through a blizzard. Well, I guess we're not going anywhere for two months. So his first match of 1889 was against Lucien Marsh Cristal in St. Paul. Uh, Cristal, who was a French wrestler, he had had a great uh, match in his title shot against William Muldoon, but the bigger and stronger Lewis pinned him twice, then submitted him with his hold in a three out of five match. Despite it being so one-sided, Cristal wanted a rematch. So two days later, Lewis ran through him and it was a second time in 20 minutes for all three falls. Yeah, and just to give a little context, the fact that losing a single fall was considered a giant upset shows you the level of dominance that Strangler had on the game at the time. I mean, Michael Jordan never swept uh, NBA Finals best of seven series. He never was able to, to win every game. To give you an idea of when we think of the best in a multiple fall or a multiple game format, the, to, to lose a single fall is pretty standard. And to understand the level of expectation that even losing a single fall is considered a failure speaks to the dominance that Strangler had. Absolutely. But that dominance was about to get tested on April 20th of 1889 when he lost the first fall against D.A. McMillan, who was a mid-card journeyman. This guy was never a main eventer. He was never a real contender. And in St. Paul, he gave up the first fall. You yeah, see that, what I did? I made a rhyme. You not only made it rhyme, but you made the segue back on me jumping the shark. The first fall, to lose the first fall to a guy who is considered not in your class can often be chalked up to hubris, maybe taking the guy too lightly, or maybe the guy just had something in his arsenal. Like you said, the, the little corner of the universe that you occupy that is your specialty. And for all we know, he might have had, you know, a certain technique that he was able to catch strength obviously he was able to catch strangler with it so he had some bread and butter that he was able to pull off and he paid for it so for me like i think we we do this a lot where we try to kind of armchair corner the fighters dead over a century but we're still trying to be like all right what went wrong in that round and i think we can chalk this up to what i a lot of times call matt sarah syndrome um matt sarah for those who don't know how would you describe matt sarah Matt Sarah is a man from New York who loves his pasta. He's a real scrapper. He's a, he's a man of the people and a true, a true fighter, but he was never, never an elite class. He was, he was considered a bit of a 500 fighter, a journeyman. And he, he, as one of the older guys on the ultimate fighter that season, earned his way into a title shot against the greatest fighter in the world at the time. And he, he performed in what is arguably the greatest upset in the history of mixed martial arts. I fully agree. He was a, a member of the Ultimate Fighter season four, which was a bunch of journeyman fighters. And at the end, the winner would have gotten a title shot against Georges St. Pierre. Nobody gave this guy a shot. Nobody thought that this was gonna be anything other than a stunt massacre. Maybe even George St. Pierre, uh, you know, didn't even think he had to train too hard for it because Matt Sarah knocked him out in the first round. 
Yeah, I mean, this was on, this was the UFC equivalent of Tyson versus Buster Douglas. Maybe even more so. Yeah. It, like, I mean, it, it, it really was stunning. Granted, St. Pierre came back, he took the belt and, you know, held on to it for a very, very long time. Matt Serra really didn't do a whole lot on the big stage after that. But that's kind of, you know, once, you, once you're on the top of the world, it's easy to take an, kind of an unworthy challenger seriously. And as you can see, that can cost you. But George St. Pierre can be envious of Strangler Lewis because he was knocked out, he was done. Strangler was doing a, a three out of five match against this man. So he was able to come back. And come back, he did. He pinned McMillan three straight times. Three straight times, but this is a rare compliment from Evan Lewis because all compliments from Strangler Lewis are rare. He singled him out and publicly stated, this guy is tough. This guy is a badass. I give him all the credit in the world. He actually gave an opponent a compliment, which he didn't do very often. Yeah, that, that really speaks volumes because you're talking about a guy who has such a vicious mentality that typically if, if his opponent showed him a true grit and a true desire to beat him, he would just punish him for it. Oh, absolutely. And so, yeah, so maybe we're seeing him slipping a little bit in his psychological game. We see him being a little bit more of a person, which, you know, maybe is a healthy growth as a human being, but maybe not so much as an in-ring badass. On July 21st of that year, he took on English champion Charles Green. Lewis beat him, of course, and he did so violently. He won the first fall in two minutes. The second fall was over an hour. I mean, it took a little bit longer to finish him off again and ended with his famous stranglehold, the guillotine choke, the hanghold. And he must have cranked it hard because Green's neck was injured and he couldn't continue for another fall. It was a three out of five. So he got choked so hard, his throat was a mess, his neck was a mess, and he just had to tap out between rounds. And he did not for ask for a rematch. And that was probably for the best. Yeah, and, and the the... The anatomy of a guillotine choke is there's also an inherent neck crank involved in it, especially depending on where your grip is. If you're a little bit more involved with the jaw versus under the chin, you can really put some dangerous angles and tension and pressure on the neck when you're applying that thing. So it is not, I'm actually not, I'm actually a little surprised that he has ha not had more neck crank type finishes from that hold. I agree 100%. And, you know, he, he, like I said, he is, I think we can also put a lot of blame on referees of the time who, despite they should have known the catch rules, the catch holds, who knows what the failing was, but there's a lot of cases that we've heard in this story where he'd get somebody in a serious submission hold and it would be 30, 40 seconds before the referee realizes he needs to break this up, at which point the person is unconscious, the person is hurt, the person has a broken limb. And keep in mind, this is a time before tap outs were just universally understood. Someone that has never watched MMA in current times understands that the submit, the way to end a submission is a tap out. That has become common knowledge. At that time, the tap out wasn't a thing. There was no uniformed indication of submission other than saying I give up and if you're being choked unconscious it's really hard to utter that phrase we we saw more injuries we saw more people having to quit because hey it's a little hard to come back from being unconscious for 30 seconds and still perform athletically August 7th 
1889. He got a rematch against D.A. McMillan in Omaha, uh, the guy who he gave up a fall to and actually praised. And the Omaha Daily Bee called it one of the most interesting exhibitions ever seen in this city, which is old-timey speak for, holy crap, this was badass. And also, this isn't a very big city. <laughs> uh, also true. Unfortunately, Lewis came in heavy, but McMillan was beaten and bruised from a reported 15-hour match the previous week. You heard me right. A 14-hour wrestling match a week ago. If I had a 14-hour match a week ago, I would still be in bed, needing to be rolled over to avoid bed sores. Yeah, I want to know how they how they divvied this thing up. At one point, is he like lunch break like is anybody else like what is does the referee get to go to the bathroom in a 14-hour match man i mean how is this uh, how is this even being uh executed well i'm sure like with most wrestling matches at the time there were you know big like long breaks between the falls but good lord that is a hard way to spend your day uh, the match was three out of five falls and it was just nonstop action from all descriptions as Lewis attacked aggressively, but McMillan defended well. Throughout the match, McMillan was practically standing on his head, doing many somersaults to get out of Lewis's grip to avoid his shoulders hitting the canvas. But Lewis secured the first fall around the eight minute mark. They took a 15-minute break before the second, and they came out aggressive again, just nonstop going at it. McMillan caught Lewis in a full, full Nelson, pressing so tight that people thought that he was going to submit from it, because people forget that a Nelson properly applied is a submission hold. Yeah, especially if you're applying it on someone that doesn't understand the technique and how to defend it. You can do some real damage to both the shoulders and the neck with that hold. Oh, absolutely. I remember um, I got a really good first-hand demonstration at a seminar with Bart Vale one time when he put he put me in one and I was like why is my why is my chin touching my belly button yes this is a, this is a position that can create a tremendous amount of leverage and force on the neck and the shoulders and I would imagine the strangler was probably sweating it pretty good oh he must have been because McMillan used that Nelson to turn him to the mat and pinned him for the second fall wow that is tremendous yeah, and he pressed the action. He came out aggressive for the third. But whether it was the previous long match or Lewis just constantly coming at him, McMillan did start wearing down. Lewis kept coming at him hard and pinned him at three minutes of the fourth fall. So the fifth fall, it was the they were two and two at that point. You know, Lewis came out and just went at him. He knew his opponent was tiring. He knew he didn't have much. Uh, you know, much much left in the tank. At the 16 minute mark, he secured a leg lock and half Nelson. Whatever the fuck that means. I mean, I tried finding photos. I tried finding like maybe some catch handbooks to show me what a half Nelson leg lock is. No idea. If you have any ideas, hey, just message us on Facebook and inform us because God damn it, I want to know. I don't know what it looks like, but what I'm picturing in my head is pretty fantastic. I mean, but then we also have to run it through the filter of the verbiage and the understanding of what they were looking at that day. Exactly. Perhaps he had the half Nelson with the leg ride and he had sort of like a half guard kind of leg scissor, you know, his leg scissored around his opponent's leg. And that may be a very rudimentary description of that kind of hold. And that would make a lot more sense. Yeah. I mean, like in my mind, I was thinking something like a, um, a Sambo Victor throw. Oh. where, you know, you kind of hook the arm and you roll forward into a knee bar. So you're still kind of holding on to the upper body for control while getting the knee bar. 
Who the hell knows? I would love to find out. We don't have a time machine. Doctor Who, if you're listening, please take us back in time to watch this match. Yes, and I apologize in advance to all my underbelts that I'm going to be practicing different ways of trying to figure out what he did upon. And this was a, you know, this this went the the full, you know, five falls. And part of that does make my carny senses tingle, making me wonder, was this a legit match? Could this be a work? But then you think about how many NBA and NHL uh, playoff series go to seven games. When you have two people that are equally matched or just their styles are bad for each other, you can go back and forth pretty easy for seven, you know, seven games. These two went back and forth for five falls, similar fashion, and the 1,200 ticket buyers went home happy having witnessed a just completely bonkers match. Yeah, that is, that is a real... Uh phenomenon in competition when the the underdog is able to rise to the occasion and take a champion to depths you know that's the story of rocky man it's like if you can take the best guy further than he's ever been taken and and he brought that that level out of strangler it's no no wonder that strangler this is the same guy that strangler praised and one thing that was notable about the match is Lewis didn't attempt his stranglehold. Maybe he knew it wouldn't be smart against McMillan because he did had no luck with it last time. Maybe it was out of respect. It was also possibly banned, and that just wasn't recorded in the uh, the newspaper clippings. And McMillan, he wasn't a star and never really became one, not even a Wikipedia page today with his name on it. But he was definitely the toughest challenge to Lewis at this point in his career. And... Lewis went on, he, he, he wrapped up the year fairly unspectacularly with a series of draws against William Muldoon. And that, that is a really surprising statement to say that it was unspectacular because you're talking about the two greatest wrestlers in the world at that time. These are the top dogs. And it, it's really interesting how that match came to be and how, as we talked about in the Muldoon episodes, and I think it's really interesting that they met at this point where it was almost like a mo- moment of realization for each of them that they weren't who they needed to be. And and I, it was like they both leveled up off of that. And that's what competing against the best does. Yeah, and it does show also that these were two men who at no point stepped in the ring against each other at their real career or athletic peaks, but they were still evenly matched, constantly going to draws. They were the two toughest sons of bitches of their era, and it's just, unfortunately, we never got to see the best Muldoon against the best Strangler Lewis, but such is life. It's kind of like Chuck Liddell versus uh, Waterley Silva, where people wanted that fight for a decade, and by the time we got it, we kind of got the old chewed up version of each. It was still a great fight, fight. but it wasn't what what it could have been in earlier days. So moving into 1880, uh, January, he caught the Russian flu and that cost him a bit of his career. I'll make the joke again. Russian flu is not a euphemism for a vodka hangover the way I use it. It was a legitimate illness that was rocking the world at that point. But he got over it enough to go into the ring with William Muldoon and he lost a one fall match. It really wasn't a uh, spectacular affair but it was what it was. And he wanted another match with Muldoon, but he had to call it off because he was just 
he was sick. He was having lots of problems with the uh, the flu. And for a while, it did seem like he wasn't going to recover. Keep in mind, this is the late 1800s. You didn't have all these fancy antibiotics. People died of the flu. People didn't really understand that, hey, maybe you should wash your hands after you poop and then eat. I just assume people were cavemen back then. Uh, but it was a serious situation. People died of basic illnesses very easily then. So... Thankfully for wrestling fans and Lewis himself, he did recover, he got better, he moved on with his career. Yeah, and if you've ever played Oregon Trail, you understand how prevalent dysentery and the like were at the time. To, to, to make it back from any serious illness was probably a 50-50 venture at best. Oh, 100%. I mean, it was really, people don't understand, in America don't understand today what it's like to be like, oh, uh, a dead bird fell into the well and my whole family pooped themselves to death. Yeah, and there's, you know, whether you're talking about something as simple as penicillin or, you know, the ability to disinfect cuts. These are things, you know, at that time, if you got a hernia, if you tore a ligament or a tendon, that was the way your body was for the rest of your life. Oh, 100%. It was, you could be crippled, you could become disabled very easily because, you know, med medical science was where it was in the late 1800s. But he recovered, he got back on his feet, he got back in the ring. In June, he took on Professor Frank Lewis in Minneapolis. I'm not sure what he was a professor of, maybe French literature, maybe divinity. Maybe he, uh, you know, learned the culinary arts. I don't know, I couldn't find out, moving on. And the gimmick of the match, because of course there had to be a gimmick to the match, is that Lewis would throw him in 15 minutes or give his opponent $25. But Frank Lewis, and keep in mind, no relation. Frank Lewis played smart defense because you know it's always easier to win on defense than sometimes it is on offense and pocketed that $25. And he continued that $25 challenge for a while, uh, you know, against James Collins on June 25th. And he, he really wanted to keep that $25 in his pocket as he should and pinned his challenger in five minutes. I just want to point out that the professor gave a a lesson in economics to Strangler that day as he was able to hold off the throw and uh, pocket the cash, man. Uh, yep, it's, it's you know, like I said, it's, you, uh, what's the saying? Defense wins championships? Defense wins championships. And it's a lot harder in a, from like a jujitsu or MMA perspective. When you are going against somebody who has a lead, you can fight not to lose. The guy can have top mounts on you in a jujitsu match and if you, he does not have the ability to score more points to take the point advantage, you can literally just defend submissions and it's called stalling, but it, it's done pretty regularly. And it's because it's a lot harder to beat somebody whose only focus is to not allow you to do the thing that will beat them than it is to beat someone who's also trying to beat you. And after that, you know, after he did his $25 challenge for a while, Lewis headed out to the West Coast. He, you know, was a tour put together by Parson Davis, but he didn't really beat anyone worth mentioning until around 1890. It was a lot of just local jerk matches, uh, open challenge matches, nothing that really is worth discussing. So we're not just going to discuss it. We're going to move on to August 26th of 1890 when he takes on Dan McLeod in San Francisco. McLeod was the local Olympic club champion and the match drew 2,500 people. You're going to hear a lot about McLeod as we move forward in this series because he was a fascinating character. One thing he liked to do was to assume a fake name and go to a carnival show in the Midwest and challenge the, the grapplers who were doing these open you know, $25, $50 challenges and be like, well, I'm just a simple 
you know, furniture salesman from Omaha, I think I could grapple you and then go out and submit the the wrestler and the challenge and pocket the money and be like, ah, shucks, I guess I did all right and disappear down the road, never to be seen again. A heck of a scam if you're tough, a heck of a scam for that time and place. And we'll talk more about him and his uh, way of doing things later because one of his most notorious times he did that trick was against a young Frank Gotch. Wow, that... I, I am excited to learn how that ended because I cannot imagine that ended very well for him. Oh, it's it's an interesting tale and we'll hear it later. Uh, but for now, Lewis agreed to throw McLeod three times in an hour or be considered the loser. And he pulled it off, but it wasn't easy. McLeod actually had Lewis in trouble several times during the third frame. So he put up a hell of a fight, but he was just not in the same league as Lewis. And in San Francisco, he finally had his rematch with Joe Acton, who we discussed in part one, where they had a hell of a match and then did a second a second match. that was such an obvious work that it made everyone hate both of them. Yeah, it sounds like his 181890 run was originally about you. As you said, he was going through all these guys, no big names. It was like he was on his comeback trail for himself coming off of being sick. And he had to build himself back up and then he worked he worked his way to where he was working against top guys again and it sounds like he relit his fire we're talking about a man who almost died of the flu and he's a professional athlete if you're a professional athlete and you're not professionally athletic is that the term uh hey guess what you're there's no food on the table there's no money in your pocket but you're not ready to take on the big names so you do a bunch of little tune-up fights getting yourself back into ring shape because there's no downtime. You don't have big money sponsors paying for a long training camp. It's either, you know, it's money now. It's money now or it's all over. He, you know, he went the path of least resistance and uh, choked the shit out of a bunch of local goofballs up and down the West Coast. And there's a term in, in the modern day boxing lexicon that is the tomato can. And the tomato can is essentially the boxing jobber. And the reason they call call somebody a tomato can is because that's how the up-and-comers keep food on their table. When, they, when they're coming up in the game and they haven't earned that big payday yet, you fight a tomato can, you put a tomato can on your shelf, you eat for the night. And also it's a tomato can because you beat on it till red stuff pours out. Yes, that's, that's the deeper metaphor. I, you know, I was going to leave that to the abstracted mind, but you're absolutely right, man. It's, the tomato can is definitely what the guy's face looks oh, like uh, at the end, too. Yeah, and it's, it's, you know, with boxing, legitimate boxing, real boxing is a sport, you know, combat sport. Any boxer who has those huge records, this is true of MMA or any legitimate combat sport, if you have a record of 125 and 3, there's a lot of used Carl salesmen who box on the weekends in those records. You know, those are not all against top guys. There's lots of runs of beating up uh, repairmen and guys who work for the phone company uh, who uh, box, uh, you know, as a hobby. They're, you pad those numbers pretty tight, but that's that's the way you, uh, you know, build yourself up. It is the way the game works. It is the way of the gosh darn world. Sorry about the strong language with that. Um, but yeah, moving moving into that rematch with Joe Acton, they kind of put the stain of their worked match behind them, and they both were in a point in their careers where they had a lot to prove again. And it was another stipulated match with Lewis requiring to throw Acton twice in two hours or be the loser. Uh, he managed to get one throw, but couldn't quite land that second. I'm not sure why he went up against somebody who was so evenly matched 
with a crazy stipulation match, but he did it. He didn't pull it off. He was declared the loser by default. Que sera, sera. He called it uh, pretty much quits for the uh, for the year. He went back home for Christmas, and his manager, Parson Davis, worked hard to put together a match against Tom Connors. Connors was a big star at the time, but he wasn't really interested in the match and insisted on stipulations that Lewis wouldn't agree to. So you have two guys that are, you know, big stars, very, very tough, but they just couldn't agree on the rules of the match. So it never happened. And that happens a lot when there's not a governing board to say, no, it's this way or the highway where it's two men trying to come up with things. Um, It's like I remember one time at uh, his gym. Uh, Amal Easton, a local amazing jiu-jitsu instructor, his instructor, Renzo Gracie, came to visit and they were going to roll. And I'm like, oh, this is going to be magic to watch. They spent 45 minutes going over the rules of their of their match. And it was just like, oh, well, this is a peek behind the curtain that I wasn't expecting. But gosh, darn it, it's not boring. Yeah. And that's, you know, and from a from the micro to the macro, that that same sort of scenario applies to like, look at the. uh uh, Mayweather Pacquiao, the, the, the history and the, the, the years that it took to get that fight in the ring because of that exact same situation. Both guys wanted to control the variables of the matchup, whether it's who's going to be the referee, where the fight's going to take place, all of these factors, because these are things that can help shave the advantage one way or the other. Exactly. It's like we saw in the William Muldoon story where there were matches that were held up sometimes for hours because there was disagreement on who the referee would be. It's like little things that can affect the outcome of the match. Too many people have the veto power on it. So it turns into long negotiations while the ticket buyers are sitting up there getting bored and getting a little grouchy. It's it's the classic, that doesn't work for me, brother. And it was about this time that Lewis sought another match against William Muldoon, but Muldoon pulled out and retired. Muldoon did, however, offer to pair Lewis with his protege, Ernest Rober. With Muldoon retiring while champion, Lewis, Tom Connors, Ernest Rober, and Jack Karkeek all claimed to be the champion. They all said they had the title. Nobody beat Muldoon for the title, but he passed it on to Rober publicly. But all these people suddenly said, I'm the top guy. Fight me to prove that you're not. And a lot of these guys did not want to fight each other. And Lewis's reputation took another hit in August of 91 when Sorokichi Masada died after a short life of partying too hard in America. And in the press, several paper. Yeah, it really will. Uh, in the press, several papers. And it, was, it wasn't true. They incorrectly stated that Lewis had broken uh, Matsada's leg in their match. He wasn't a beloved icon because he was routinely just referred to by racial slurs in the press because it's the late 1800s. But he died. He was famous. And in his obituary, people are talking about that piece of crap, uh, Strangler Lewis breaking his leg in a match, again, making people mad at him for being alive and being himself. Yes, and, and he did he did crank on the old leg lock, and maybe this was the the uh, what is it the, the chickens coming home to roost, as they say. Pretty much. And then in Chicago on March twenty first, eighteen ninety two, the Strangler took on Cornish wrestling champ John King, hoping that this would lead to a match against Ernest Rober. He saw Rober really as the legitimate heir to William Muldoon. He had a lot of 
grouchiness towards Muldoon and his legacy because he never really got that big win over him. He, that, was the, that was the brick wall that he ran into time and time and time again that kept him from being acknowledged as the greatest wrestler in the world. So he had to now settle for second best with Muldoon having retired. So in Chicago, he took on this Cornish champ, John King, and it was a three out of five match with different rules for every round. First was catch, which Lewis, of course, won in under 10 minutes. The second was Cornish wearing the jackets, which King won in 13 minutes. Third match was side hold. Side, have you ever heard of side hold wrestling? I, I believe that was the, uh, the art of, uh, of our former president. Am I correct in, in that Recollection? Yeah, Bill Clinton. Oh, wrong president. No, no Abraham Lincoln was a competitor in sidehold wrestling. Sidehold wrestling, the starting position is clasping hands, twisting over to your side, clasping hands on the other side, and that's the starting position. It's almost like a test of strength. If you see a picture of it, you'd assume it was like a still from a swing dancing uh, competition or something. It's very strange. And Lewis won that round inside of three minutes. And Seidel started in England, but it really died out in England in the 1800s. And it was just carried on by the descendants of British colonists and settlers in the Midwest. So it was a British style that died in Britain, but kept going in America for some time. Uh, the fourth, they kept the jackets on for some collar and elbow, and King won that in 15 minutes. And the final fall was Greco-Roman rules, which to me is bananas because neither of these guys are Greco-Roman specialists. Greco-Roman is a strength and endurance-based sport, and they saved that for the final fall. <laughs> yeah, and it's also interesting because it's neither of these guys' wheelhouse. It sounds like, you know... Strangler had, was at a disadvantage when he had the jacket on. He lost both of his falls in the, in the gi or jacket-specific rounds. And now that they've got the final round, it's, it's two apiece, and they're going into arguably the most grueling sub-genre of grappling, Greco-Roman. Yeah, because keep in mind, both of these guys are good with either leverage throws from grabbing the jacket, you know, judo, jiu-jitsu, sambo style, uh, both were good with submissions. Strangler Lewis was an expert of what we would call no-gi grappling today. You know, he would not wear a gi. He was good at catching those limbs while they're uh, slippery. And with Greco-Roman, there are no trips. There are no submissions. It's all upper body leverage. And that's a hell of a thing to do if that's not your expertise after already wrestling for an hour. Yeah, they, they took away both competitors' advantages and put them in the most grueling format for the final for the final frame. That's really, really interesting. And despite it not being either of their strengths, Lewis did finish off King inside of five minutes. So he secured his match against Ernest Rober to secure his claim as the world champion, as the biggest wrestling star in the world now that Muldoon was out of the way. And that match took place on March 2nd, 1883. But in order to make it happen, he had to agree to ban his stranglehold. Yes, that's, that's all too common. And he's got the young up-and-coming blue chipper that he's got to dethrone here. And then they're going to take away his signature stranglehold. It sounds like a, a recipe for the old, grumpy, vicious strangler to come out. And the match took place at the Olympic Club that holds 6,000 people. And you're probably thinking, this is a huge match. These are huge stars. That place was sold out. 
It was not. There were only 1,500 ticket buyers, which can be partially blamed on a huge boxing match that was supposed to be the co-main event. They got canceled. But, you know, they went in there in front of a, a decent house, and Lewis outweighed Rober 185 to 178, which is slight, but even a slight weight advantage is significant in combat sports. Yes, that's a, that is enough to make a, a significant amount of difference when it comes to leverage and, and power and just making the other guy carry your weight. And, you know, the, the draw suffered, but the show must go on, darling. This is to determine the number one, the champion. The match was set for a three out of five falls, alternating between Greco-Roman and Catch, because Rober's background was Greco-Roman, Lewis's was Catch as Catch can, with the winner of the quickest fall picking the stipulation for the fifth if there's a fifth, which sounds very goofy, but it makes sense in a sense uh, to keep it fair for the competitors. Kind of, a, you know, if you win the fastest pin, you win the fastest submission, you get the home court advantage for the final fall. Lewis landed the aforementioned, confusingly described half-Nelson leg lock at seven minutes for the first match. Rober pinned Lewis under Greco-Roman rules in half an hour. In the third, there was controversy as Lewis pinned Rober in 30 seconds, but the ref missed it. The audience didn't, and they went haywire yelling. Lewis was pissed, uh, and he caught him again with a leg lock in 12 minutes. Well, usually when the ref misses the pin, it's it's the baby face that's getting the short end of the stick. It's interesting that the crowd reacted in the way that they did. But and it also shows the the mental tenacity that he was like, oh, you're going to take that away from me. OK, well, now your leg is going to go the wrong direction. Lewis nearly beat Rober at his own strength in the fourth and took Rober down in the Greco-Roman rules. But at the 24 minute mark, Rober used a full Nelson to turn Lewis's shoulders to the canvas, got the pin. Having gotten the quickest finish, Lewis got to dictate catch rules for the fifth fall, and he caught Rober with a headlock takeover in just over a minute. Yeah, it sounds like based on, you know, the forensic breakdown of these matches, that headlock takeover explains why he has ended up in that full Nelson multiple times, because if the guy is able to slip his head out of the back, and that sounds like that has been Strangler's signature takedown throughout his run, but if you're able to pop your head out of the back, the, the full Nelson is right there. So it makes sense why he has ended up in that hold against multiple opponents. And again, we have to look at this best of five that went all the way to the end. Was it a shoot? Was it a work? Again, best of sevens happen all the time. If you have two guys that are evenly matched, anybody out there who's uh, done jujitsu, wrestling, sambo, and spent all Saturday afternoon just rolling with your uh, fellow blue belts, purple belts, brown belts, black belts, you know that if you're equally matched, you can go all day. It can go back and forth. It's just a matter of who left an arm out the longest. It's a game of centimeters. So even though it seems suspicious, at this point, it was devastating for the reputations of either men to lose. There was not a huge box office. There would have been less of a box office for a rematch. So there's no real reason this could have been a work or should have been a work. So I see this as being a legitimate match top to bottom. Yeah, I, I, I have to agree because I think especially when you factor in the variable of the alternating rounds based on each guy's strength. Because if you have been at one of those all-day Saturday open mat sessions, usually the guys who we are doing what is their area of expertise are going to win that round. If you're doing takedowns, the guys with the most wrestling are usually going to get the takedown more often than not. 
If you're doing submissions, the guys who focus on that part of the game are usually gonna get the tap. And it makes sense that both guys basically defended home court. Both guys won their respective strength ruled rounds. And it makes sense that it would go the distance because on top of that, all the marbles were on the line. This is the, the most legitimate championship match to determine the number one wrestler in the world. He he won the title and spent the re- most of his career defending that title. Titles at this point were a nebulous description because so many people were declaring themselves a champion that somebody would beat them and declare themselves a champion. There was no title. There was no governing body. These terms didn't really mean a whole lot outside of just trying to sell more tickets. And he was top of the world. He was defending the title, uh, traveling. He was a star. He was the champ. But a very dangerous contender was immediately tapping him on the shoulder. And that competitor was Martin Farmer Burns. Burns's camp had to pony up $1,000 to make the match happen. Uh, Lewis knew this was a risky match, so he wanted to make sure this was going to make money either way. And that's why the match didn't happen until 1884. Yeah, Farmer Burns is, as you are going to find out, a tremendously scary individual and, you know, great gimmick as well, man. Oh, absolutely. You know, he was notorious for showing up to, once again, those circus shows, those carnival shows, wearing overalls, just like, I'm just a goofy farmer. And putting somebody to sleep or grabbing an arm because he was a dangerous submission specialist and went on to train Frank Gotch, possibly the greatest wrestler America ever produced. On November 20th, Strangler Lewis took on Duncan C. Ross in Chicago in order to win the prize money of $2,000 at 80% of the gate. He had to win three straight falls, and he was not fucking around. The first fall was Greco-Roman rules, which neither men really specialized in, and Lewis won in 13 minutes. The second round was catch-as-catch-can, and the third was Cumberland wrestling rules, which was Ross's specialty. Cumberland wrestling, I had to look this up, it's a North England folk style where you put your head on the right shoulder, the right arm under the left arm, and the first person to be taken off their feet loses. That's a, that's a very interesting sub little niche grappling because that's basically a neutral Greco position. Yep. And if, uh, you know, if you broke, you know, if somebody intentionally let go of the other one, that counted as a fall. It's very strange rules, very intriguing. Uh, but the audience didn't get to see it. It didn't matter. During the second fall, Lewis hurt Ross's shoulder with a hard <laughs> with a hard cranked shoulder lock and he couldn't continue. Yeah, well, you know, the the submission specialist strikes again, man. Yeah, we can't really say if that was Lewis, you know, being a jerk, if it was Ross trying to fight out of a submission hold he wasn't going to escape, or if it was a referee not knowing what he was looking at and not doing his job. Who can say? All we know is he ended up with an ouchie on his shoulder and couldn't come out for the next round. Lewis then was looking forward to his match against Farmer Burns but he caught typhoid pneumonia in 1894. And this was the third time he caught this illness. He he had so many problems with health throughout his career. And he recovered in time to schedule a match with Farmer Burns. Unfortunately, the match was called off when Lewis was diagnosed with tuberculosis. Keep in mind, this is the late 1800s. It was Oregon Trail, you have died of X, happens all the time. Farmers had 20 children because they knew three would live to be adults. Yeah, what a tough bastard. This guy has had the Russian flu, tuberculosis, three bouts of pneumonia, and captured the world title all in the same grumpy 
uh, you know, the, the same. I, you can see why the guy's pissed off, man. He just can't. He just can't get clear and truly ascend to that that true upper echelon of greatness. It seems like it's always escaped his grip. Yeah, he was just simply put too mean to die, and he recovered. Uh, he did need the rest of the year to physically recover and get back in shape. Meanwhile, Martin Burns was waiting, training, and getting ready for his shot at Lewis, which finally happened on April twentieth, eighteen ninety-five. Martin Farmer Burns was a catch specialist and one of the best America ever produced. He was famous in his day as a wrestler, and he became more famous as a trainer to champions like Frank Gotch, and he was a strong as hell Iowa farm boy. He would demonstrate his neck strength by hanging himself in press demonstrations. That is not only incredible visually, but... I bet that makes him really, really hard to choke. And I imagine that played a little bit of the psychology against a guy like Stringer Lewis, whose signature hold is, is a stranglehold. And in 1885, Burns was the number one contender to Lewis's title. The 34-year-old Burns and the 35-year-old Lewis faced off in Chicago. Where else would it be? Burns came in at peak physical condition, ready for war. Lewis, however, who spent a year recovering from a near-death experience, weighed in at 200 pounds and not solid muscle. The Omaha Bee called him fat as a prize pig. Well, <laughs> that is quite the insult back in the day, man. That is that is some harsh press. Yeah, that's it's kind of like uh, <laughs> it's kind of like, hey, did really did people really get mad when you got called a jive turkey in the 70s and 60s? It's like, yeah, people died over that. It's, it's, yeah, it, it was a pretty cutting insult, but despite being out of shape, Lewis was still very dangerous. He was aggressive against Burns right out of the gate and got the first fall using a hammerlock to turn Burns over for a pin. The second fall was a little more defensive on both sides, but the action picked up and Lewis managed a half Nelson that Burns reversed and landed a quick throw that left Lewis dazed. Burns jumped in, he attacked, he got aggressive, and threw him again before pinning him at the 25-minute mark. And Chicago had been Lewis's stomping ground for years. Throughout this series, you're gonna, you keep hearing us say, this match was in Chicago, this match was in Chicago. But the audience was firmly behind Burns. Burns had been training and appearing in Illinois for some time. His camp was in Northern Illinois, and Lewis did nothing to endear the public to him for years. He was known as a prick, he was known as a bastard in the ring, and the audience treated him as such. The third fall saw Burns picking up the pace and getting even more aggressive, but Lewis managed to pin him at the 22-minute mark. So at this point, they've been going at it for nearly an hour. You know, and this fired up Burns. He he was he came out he came out hard uh, for the fourth frame to get a fall in one minute. So we're getting kind of deep into this match, and Lewis caught Burns with the whole with his uh, famed stranglehold in the fifth. And had it, but he had it over Burns' face. And you'll see this a lot in grappling and MMA, where you have a guillotine, guillotine, what am I, French? A guillotine, but you get your forearm over the guy's jaw, his mouth, his nose, his cheekbone. It sucks and it doesn't feel good, but you're not going to tap out to it. And that seems to be the case in in this. I assume you, we, we both know how that feels. Yeah, especially when you're talking about a guy that literally hangs himself to demonstrate his neck strength and ability to fend off chokes. You're not gonna get the job done squeezing in an improper position on a guy like that. So Burns was able to get out after a few minutes, but his nose was bleeding, his face was pretty messed up. 
Of course, he had a very strong man's forearm grinding into it for probably two or three minutes. And Burns went at Lewis again, picking up several times and, and setting up slams, but Lewis would bridge out of it, slip out of it, manage to escape it every time. He, Lewis is starting to play defense. We, don't, we didn't really see this a whole lot. He was always the attacker. And Burns dropped Lewis and secured the hammerlock, turned him over again and pinned him at the 10 minute mark. 3,000 Chicago wrestling fans went apeshit. Lewis stormed off immediately. He went backstage without a word to the crowd, without shaking hands, without doing anything classy or sportsmanlike. Parson Davis, Lewis's manager, who you think would be trying to secure a rematch right out of the gate, didn't. He went up, started yelling at the crowd, yelling at everybody, trying to secure a title shot for his other client, Dan McLeod. Well, so he got he got turned on by his own management after he after he failed to get the job done. That is that is low. Lewis spent the rest of 95 traveling on exhibition tours. He was sick. His body was broken down. He was overweight. He was not in good shape physically, mentally or emotionally. He was fighting with his manager, who was clearly putting him on the back burner at this point, despite the years of success and big, uh, big, big business. And in January of 96, he beat J.C. Comstock in two straight falls and then had a match against the aforementioned Dan McLeod and couldn't throw the guy. Most sources claim these matches were a work, trying to use Lewis's name to build up McLeod as he was challenging Martin Burns. That was something you start seeing in this era, where somebody kind of on their back end would start working matches to make somebody else look good for the sake of their career to set up a legitimate match. Yeah, you're building the next guy, you're giving back to the game. And I'm not surprised at all that that's who Strangler chose to put in that position. McLeod is probably from what Strangler has said publicly, his his most respected and revered opponent that he ever had. So it makes sense that that would be the guy he would, he would give that push to. Lewis also couldn't throw Burt Scheller in Kalamazoo on February 11th, 96. And this might be another possible work or maybe just Lewis's body was too broken down and couldn't get the job done with these specific stipulation matches. And he was clearly getting towards the end of a long career. And the toll wrestling took on his body, the illnesses, the constant public hate, the legal problems left him a shell of his former self. He was still tougher than 99% of the people walking the earth, but titles, glory, huge paydays were getting further and further in the past. In 97, Lewis ended, ended his relationship with Parson Davis. This was just, things had gotten too bad between the two of them. Parson didn't think he was a star. Lewis, you know, there's no such thing as an old fighter who thinks they uh, need to hang it up. It's, 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 a, it's, a hard, it's a hard road to go. It's, you know, saying I am no longer young and the, the top guy around here, that's a hard mindset to break. A lot of fighters in every combat sport have a hard time with that. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's the, the sad tragedy of a champion because you don't know you're past your prime until you're past your prime. You know, I can think of very few examples where someone left at the true right moment, at the top of their, at the top of their game and left on top. You know, you can talk... It's Elway is a good example of that, where he was he was on his decline, but he won those last two championships on the way out, and and he realized it was time to hang it up. But you see it in the fight game so often. Whether you talk about Muhammad Ali, so you know Tyson, so many guys, the majority of their losses came at the end of their career when they were on the decline. You see in MMA these days specifically so many dominant champions that 
held, they were kings of their division for years and years, and then post six or seven straight horrific losses on their way out and end up with a rather difficult overall record to understand if you don't know the details. Because there will be champions who are legends of the game with a 14 and 10 record, and you realize a lot of that was, they could, should have called it quits, but the promoter realized they could have made money on a former champ who keeps getting knocked out. Um, and unfortunately, this isn't pro wrestling as it is today. These are real fights, these are real athletes, and those real losses come with real physical consequences. Yeah, when a fighter is shot, it happens quickly, and then he's shot, and then it goes from the, be the margin of being the best guy in the world to not even being able to beat somebody in the top 20, 25, is razor thin and that's why these declines happen so seemingly rapidly because you're good enough until you're not and the humiliations didn't stop he challenged the winner of the mcleod atherton match in january of 97 but neither man was interested he posted money with several state commissioners to get a rematch with burns but it never happened for a few minutes it seemed like he might be on the comeback trail with wins over john j rooney and jack king in 98 and while all this was happening, we saw a weird phenomenon happening. It was the rise of Yusuf Ismail, the terrible Turk, who was set to take on Ernest Rober in New York City. The terrible Turk was born in the Ottoman Empire around 1857. I found contradicting versions of the story. He was over six feet tall and weighed over 250 pounds. This is a big man for that time in history. And after a successful tour of Europe, many tournaments, lots of wins, he came to America to take on its champions. And on March 16th, 98, uh, Ismail and Rober faced off at Madison Square Garden in a highly anticipated match. This is a weird thing. Instead of a ring, I, don't, I couldn't find why this was the case. They didn't have a proper ring. It was a raised platform. And it was like eight feet up. It was wow. clearly to make it more visible, but there were no ropes around it to keep every keep the action inside. But in front of 6,000 ticket buyers, this match went down. The terrible Turk entered with a black turban and fancy coat and faced a barrage of insults, a lot of them very racist from the patriotic crowd. Rober got the babyface pop, of course. And if you were pic picturing the uh, the <laughs> the match from Rocky IV, you're not far off both in the reaction and in how things are about to go down. Within 30 seconds, Rober stepped close to the edge of the platform, and Ismail charged him and knocked him eight feet to the ground. He landed on his head and shoulder, and he was knocked unconscious for several minutes before he could even pretty much respond verbally. His shoulder was badly injured. His back was badly injured. He was on the shelf for months healing up. Ismail started dancing in the ring after knocking Rober out of the, off the ledge, which made it harder for the coroner to really claim it was an accident. Rober was awarded the win on a technical foul and the audience nearly rioted. They were chanting, kill the Turk. The police had to get involved to hold people back. It was bad news all the way around. That is some good heat, daddy. I love this guy. He came out in a black turban, fancy coat, hit the baby face before the bell, put him on the shelf, and then he, did a, then he did a victory dance? Yeah, and they tried to put together a rematch and both parties agreed on it, they got together. The match didn't happen because the audience rioted before the match could even get started. So we have a very serious villain in the terrible Turk. And despite the rage from the public, 
10,000, you heard me right, 10,000 tickets were sold to watch Ismail take on Evan Lewis on June 20th, 1898 in, where else? Chicago. A lot of sources I find list this as for the American championship. There was no real title. It was just, once again, people just trying to build up matches by making it a title match for a title that did not exist until that very second and would not exist 10 seconds after the match started. In less than three minutes, the terrible Turk caught Lewis in his own hold. He caught him with the stranglehold, the guillotine, and the ref stopped it and awarded the match to Lewis on a foul because the stranglehold was not allowed in this. Wow, talk about a delicious turn of, of fate where his, his hold that has been banned to inhibit him his entire career, now the, the ban of that hold plays to his advantage. And yeah, when the, when the ref stopped it after previous all the previous bullshit, the fans lost their minds. Uh, there was nearly a riot. Lewis's manager even agreed to let the match continue, but the referee refused. So the police got involved and dragged the referee out of the building and put in a new referee. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is amazing. Because they wanted to see the job get done. It's very interesting how the, the Turk was able to become such a villain in the public eye that Strangler is now the babyface. Yeah, the most hated man in pro wrestling is now representing the crowd. You can chalk it up to poor sportsmanship. You can chalk it up to xenophobia and racism. Either way, there was just electricity in the building. So everybody involved agreed that Lewis won by disqualification and would get the winner's purse of a little over $2,000, but the match would restart as an exhibition match with a new referee. It was set as a two out of three match, and Ismail once again caught Lewis in the guillotine, in the stranglehold, which was now legal, and he refused to let go after Lewis tapped. The ref DQ'd him and gave the strangler the first fall, and in the second fall, he caught him with the goddamn thing again. He caught Lewis with the guillotine, the stranglehold, but this time at least he was a good sport and let go after Lewis submitted. Yeah, this is incredible. This guy's heel run is legendary. The Turk, I tip my cap to you, sir. And, and I want to point out too, keep in mind that he has a close to 70 pound weight advantage in both of these matches. And he, to, to use that size and that height to his advantage and bully and, and to create the situation to get that guillotine is really, really remarkable. Exactly. This had been Strangler's hold for years, for decades. And to the point where in order to even make matches happen, he had to forego it several times. And he just got submitted by it three times in a row. He was humiliated. He was broken by this. And if you're wondering, man, how have I never heard of the Terrible Turk? The Terrible Turk could have been a huge star, maybe the biggest of the early 20th century, but fate would step in on the way back to Europe. He crossed the Atlantic on the final voyage of the SS Laborjna, and I might be mispronouncing that, oh well, which sank on the 4th of July, 1898. He was one of 600 people who drowned as it went down. The story goes that he had converted his winnings from wrestling into gold, and on the way back over, he never let it out of his sight, so he had it sewn into his jacket that he wore all the time that, of course, dragged him down to the bottom of the Atlantic as the liner sank. Many wrestlers for decades after used the nickname the Terrible Turk to jump on his, uh, you know, to ride his coattails, if you will. Yeah, that is 
one of the most incredible heel runs I have ever heard about in my entire life. The, the Turk, he, I mean, so many things that he did in a real competitive environment went on to become staples of the way professional wrestling villains operate today. And in the media, because Ismail committed horrible fouls during the match, he was disqualified. He was just a, a just everything you would want in a bad guy, but he was given a pass by the media and the fans because they hated Strangler Lewis even more. Yeah, that is truly remarkable, and it speaks to the level of villainy and, and heat and hatred that Strangler was able to keep throughout his career. And speaking of his career, it was definitely winding down. In his final match on March 23rd, 1899, Lewis wrestled Burt Scheller in Kansas City, Missouri. It was a three out of five with his famous stranglehold band. And Lewis was heavier at this point than he ever had been. He was tipping the scale at 210 pounds. But even looking as bad as he did, he was very dangerous. He finished Scheller in three straight falls. And he decided to call it a day. And despite many promoters, including Parson Davis, uh, attempting to lure him back to the sport, Lewis was done. He retired and never looked back. Yeah, well, he, he, had, he had nothing left to prove to, to himself, I believe, at that point. I mean, he had, he had taken on the very best guys in the world in his era. He knew where he stood. And, you know, every, every cowboy has to ride off into the sunset eventually. And he did it as a good time. He, he reached the highest heights and he faced the lowest lows in his defeat by the terrible Turk. But he realized, I'm done. He didn't go out and lose 20, 30 more times before hanging it up. He just went back to his farm and in Dodgeville, Wisconsin, and was seldom seen or heard from for the rest of his life. He turned down theater tours, exhibitions, and other appearances, but was apparently happy with just being married, living on his farm, doing farm-related things, and letting the legend of the Strangler fade into wrestling lore. And, and Strangler is probably, if you ask most wrestling fans to name the oldest wrestler that they can think of, Strangler is that guy. And a lot of them confuse it because part of his legacy was uh, a wrestler of the generation after his, Robert Friedrich, who called himself Ed Strangler Lewis as an homage to Evan Strangler Lewis. Ed Lewis being one of the greatest early NWA champions, member of the Goldust Trio, and the trainer of Luthez. Whether it was his constant battle with lung illnesses, being a lifelong smoker, both, neither, who knows, he developed lung cancer in 1917 and would pass away two years later at the age of 59. And what a tough man. All the things that he went through. I mean, they, they really did build him different back then. I mean, this guy, he didn't die from tuberculosis. That wasn't enough of a lung inhibitor. This guy went on to, to face incredible incredible adversity in his life both in the ring and out of the ring and he, he faced it with the true swagger of a villain yeah they you it's one of those guys with the skill set tenacity you think about what he could do if he were born in the modern era in a sport like mixed martial arts because this is a guy who was as dangerous as they come as educated as they come in the art of submission but he faced serious health issues his entire career, lots of setbacks, but was still 
renowned, feared, and famous for what he did in the ring. Yeah, when you're beating guys while you are suffering from tuberculosis and the Russian flu, it, it, it speaks that your, your tenacity and grit are just on another level. And that's where we're going to call it a day with the discussion of Evan Strangler Lewis. I hope you enjoyed hearing about him as much as we enjoyed talking about him. Yes, because nothing my royal self loves more than a good villain. And Strangler Lewis definitely created the mold. And thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for being here with us on this journey. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter. If you have any suggestions, questions, just want to say hi, tell us what you think pwhistorynerds at gmail.com. I'd love to hear what you have to think about things. And otherwise, you know, good night, good day, good afternoon, wherever you are, whatever time it is. We'll be back for the next episode where we're going to talk about carnival wrestling. Oh, personal favorite of mine, old chap. This is going to get delicious in a hurry. We'll talk to you then. (laughs) 